Well, hello everybody. Welcome online. Uh, we are going to dive into our Hebrews series. Uh, we are on week six. Um, just as a recap, for those of you who may not have been here, missed a week, uh, you can always go back and get those. Um, but when we started our series, we talked about the fact that the book of Hebrews is trying to get us, like Kiana just talked about, to consider Jesus. That, that when we dismiss everything else in our life, we've chased everything else in our life, there comes a moment where, where God meets with us and says, please consider me. Consider that I am who I say I am, as he even told uh, Abraham uh, in the Old Testament, Moses in the Old Testament. And so Hebrews is that book. And the theme of Hebrews is in 3.1. that says, therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling. In other words, we have a calling on our life to be looking towards heaven, not just look, live and look for here. And he says, consider Jesus. Just like in Kiana's testimony, as she considered what's life about, what's the end of life about, hell, heaven, death, all of those things, we have a Savior, we have a God who's saying, I've done everything I can to get you to consider me and to consider that I am who I say I am. The first week we looked about the, the, at the fact that what happens often is that our attention drifts. If we were raised like these Hebrews were, these Hebrews were raised in the faith, right? These were Hebrew people. They had the Old Testament. But what had happened is after committing to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they began to drift away because of persecution, because it became hard to believe that in their culture. And they began to drift. So the author reminds them, hey, you still need to trust him. You need to be sure that you're trusting Jesus. Then he went on and he said, and as you're learning how to trust, be careful. There's going to be a tendency to want to harden your hearts and not find rest but to be restless. And, and God wants to soften our hearts so we can rest in him. And then he says that you need to go on to maturity, that there's a sense of like, if you don't harden your heart and you're finding rest, that God will mature you. Don't get distracted. Don't just stay as little children running and playing in the street, hoping for the best, but learn and grow so that you can help others mature. And then last week, we talked about that the author said, you're going to have to seize the hope of Jesus. You're going to have to seize it. You're going to have to go after it because it's something that, that so easily we let go of to grab and chase other things. And this week, what I want us to look, about, look at is in the midst of seizing hope, how do we draw near? How do we draw near to God? And what does it mean that God has drawn near to, to us? And that's really what this talks about. In Hebrews 7.19, you see at the bottom of the screen, it says, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So he says to seize hope, but then he says, but there's a better hope than you can even imagine. <laughs> there's a hope beyond hopes. It's not just an earthly hope of your health or your relationships or your job or your wealth. There is a hope that's so much deeper and better that's been introduced to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's how we can draw near to the holy, awesome, powerful, scary God is because of that. So as we dive in, we look at Hebrews 7, verse 1. It says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, who met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So let's pause there for just a second. So remember the story. The story in the Old Testament is that the entire Bible is the fulfillment of a covenant that God made with a man named Abram, and then he changed his name to Abraham. 
And God came to Abraham, came to Abram, and said, hey, I want to use you. He drew near to Abraham. Abraham didn't do anything to get God to love him. He did nothing to get God's attention. God came to him and gave him an offer and said, I want to bless you. I want to make more happen through your lineage over lifetimes that you'll never see if you'll trust me and believe that I am the God that I say that I am. And Abraham actually believed it. Abraham believed the messenger. He believed and said, I will commit. And then he sold, left everything. He traveled, left his land. And God said, I'm going to take you to a land that you can't earn. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to take you through the process of obtaining something that you could never get for yourself. But it requires you dying to what you have now. Being willing to lay it on the altar and to go. That's the same message that the New Testament talks about that when Jesus came and he drew near to us and he met with us, he gave his life and he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that someday I'm going to come back to get you. I'm going to draw near to you again and I'm going to bring you to where I am. It's a beautiful picture. It's the same exact picture that God has been weaving throughout the entire Old Testament. And Abraham's response in this one moment where he's now traveling, he's going, he starts entering enemies. He starts having problems. He starts having wars in his life and people who don't like him. And he has to fight and he has to, is this the right thing? Because it doesn't look like it's the right thing. Things aren't working out well. People are attacking me. But then he defeats these kings, and in the midst of that defeat, Abraham is so overwhelmingly thankful. He's not prideful. He's not like, look what I did, I beat the kings. Nope. He's considering Yahweh saved him, which is what Jesus' name means, Yahweh saves. And he's considering how Yahweh saved him, and so Yahweh, God himself, sends his priest to come to Abraham to bless Abraham. Again, Abraham didn't earn it. God's the one that defeated the kings, not Abraham. And yet this priest comes out, and the role of a priest, the role of a priest is to help us be right and to help us experience God, help us to be right with God and help us to have peace with God. And that's what Melchizedek does. And Abraham's response to him is that he immediately, without question, gives Melchizedek a tenth of every kingdom and everything that he's just gotten. Without question, it's yours. And you see, some people argue that tithing in the Bible was an Old Testament concept. That in the New Testament, which we'll see in a minute, God calls us to give our whole lives, to surrender our lives. That is absolutely true. But this tenth was not a commanded tenth. This tenth happened, which we'll see in a minute, before the law of the tenth of the Old Testament. So Abraham, who was faithful to God, immediately gave a tenth without question. So if you're one of those people that says, well, you know, I don't know if tithing's really still biblical in the New Testament, talk to Abraham about that. Abraham gave a tenth before there was any law about it. Just out of gratitude, it's like, it's all God's, it's all his, but I'll give a little bit. Like, this is yours. You're the priest. I want to take care of you. I want you to, to distribute and care for the body. I want you as a priest to be taken care of so that more people can hear about our God, Yahweh, who saves. See, that's the purpose of why we give our time, our talent, our treasures, and we give our testimonies. It's because we just want to give God 
a piece back. Kiana has a lot more to her story. I don't even know if she gave us a tenth of her story this morning. When I first asked her to give her testimony, she's like, how long, right? Do I have 30 minutes? I'm like, no, three to five minutes. You can do it, right? And she polished and worked on it, and she gave us just a little bit. But think about this. How encouraging was it for you to hear her testimony? Just that little tenth, that little bit that you were like, wow. See, that's That's how God's encouraged by our response to him, by our giving back to him. It's a little thing, but God's like, you would give, like, thank you that we have a relationship. And then he goes on the business of giving us more and showing us more and giving us the opportunity to draw near to him. You see, this, Abraham didn't deserve this. Look at what it goes on to say, and it says, first, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Because priests are supposed to help us be right with God. Just like Jesus was our righteousness. He died in our place because we could never be right on our own. Jesus gave us his righteousness. He paid the price that we deserved. He bought us out of our slavery, the Bible says. Then also he's the king of Salem, meaning the king of peace. So the reason he purchases us is because he, not, he doesn't want us to be slaves that work for him and you'll do what I tell you to do. He purchases us because he wants us to be family, sons and daughters. He wants us to experience the drawing near and experience the peace of being near him. Because that's what the priests were supposed to do. The priests were supposed to talk about righteousness, remind people they're not righteous without God, call them to give their lives to God. And then once they did that, they were to tell them the peace and the relationship that they now have with God and how wonderful it is and how beautiful it is. That's the role of priests. Oh, by the way, the New Testament calls anyone who's a believer in Jesus a priest, a priesthood of believers, people that have been called to be Melchizedek's in the world, to go out to meet people and to tell them there is a God who is righteous. He offers you his peace. He wants to give you blessing, but you must respond to him. He goes on and he says, this priest was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning nor end of days of li- or end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. This Melchizedek priesthood was different than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood we'll see in a moment. And he said, but resembling him, he said, now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. He says, this priest was incredible. Over, he had, Abraham had no Old Testament law that said you need to do this to be right. Abraham so believed in the greatness of this priest, so believed in the greatness of what God was doing, he willingly gave his life and anything God brought, God brought through his life. Later, including his only son. Well, second son, the promised son, Isaac. He was willing to, to sacrifice Isaac And God said, no, it was just a test. See, that's what it means to truly understand that God is drawing near to us and we need to draw near to him. It goes on to say in verse 5, the sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from people. In other words, it's been commanded to Hebrews, to Jewish people. These people knew this. They knew that it was, they had to give that. He said, according to the law, that is from their brothers. They, they collect the tithes from their brothers. Though they have also descended from Abraham. But the one without this lineage collected the tents from Abraham. That's Melchizedek, not Levi. 
and blessed the one who had the promises. He blessed Abraham, and Abraham was the one who had the promises, not Levi. Without a doubt, look at this, the inferior is blessed by the superior. You see, these Hebrews in the New Testament had believed on Jesus, and what was happening was they were starting to be judged for their lifestyles. See, their lifestyle started to change. They, they started understanding the heart of the law and the motivation of the law, and they could no longer be manipulated to do what the priests that were the false prophets of their day were telling them to do. See, if, if they would have believed in Jesus but kept giving their tithe, they would have believed in Jesus and kept showing up to temple. If they would have just believed in Jesus but just kept doing the normal stuff, they wouldn't have been persecuted. Those priests would have been happy to take their money and be like, you're nuts, have a nice day. But the problem was they began to see the corruption and they began to see that the old system was gone. That in Jesus, the old system had been destroyed. And now these Hebrews were starting to wander back to the old system because that's what brought them hope. It's what they were used to. It's the things they fall back on when things get hard. Does this sound familiar? And instead of drawing near to the Messiah and drawing near to the new church body, the apostles and the body of Christ that has no walls and has no building, they were running back to what was safety and security to them. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't just draw near to God. Draw near to his new body. His new body has Jews and Gentiles together. You see, there's a response that's needed and it's remembering the fact that without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. What does that mean? The law and the priesthood of Levi was inferior to the Melchizedek priest. It was a temporary priesthood. It, it, like, for example, I am an inferior father to God the Father. To my children, I, I cannot measure up to how great a father they have. I, I can never measure up. Their father is far beyond anything I could ever be. I am inferior to the superior, and it is my job to make sure my children know that. It's my job to make sure that my children know that there is a father who's not like me. There's a father that's better than me. There's a father that you can depend on every day because I can't be in one place. I can only be in one place at one time. And you can always draw near to him when there are times you will never be able to draw near to me because of my own sin, because of something else God's called me to do, whatever it is. Someday I'm going to be dead. You can't draw near to me. It's inferior. There is someone who lives forever who will never be inferior, and you can always draw near to him. That's what the author is trying to get them to see, that the inferior is gone. It's completed. It's not that Jesus said, don't do it anymore. He said, I fulfilled it. Now you realize all of that is about me, so you don't need to go do that stuff to try to get near me. You don't have to go do that stuff to draw near to me. You draw near to me, and then you allow me to do through you the things of the law. See how that's different? It's the inferior versus the superior. He goes on and he says this. I love this. He uses the word blessed, right? He uses the word blessed by the superior. Blessed is a word that you see everywhere. It's on people's mantles. 
It's in restaurants when you go in there. It's online, hashtag blessed, all this kind of stuff. Can I just read to you really quickly what Jesus said are the superior blessings of God? You won't like them. But let's read it. The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. Pause for a moment. I don't want any of those emotions. <laughs> I don't want to feel poor in spirit. I don't want to mourn. I don't want to have to be gentle when I'm trying to win a battle. Right? It says I'm going to inherit the earth. Yeah, I'm going to inherit the earth. I'm going to kill some people. I'm going to take it. No, no, no. You're going to gently inherit it. How do you gently win? Like, that's like a football team on the field being like, who? Like, I don't, how do you, like, how does that work? Then he goes on. He says, those who hunger and thirst. I don't want to be hungry and thirsty. I want to know God loves me and I don't have to hunger and thirst and I'm just always full. Nope. Like, Jesus takes the blessings and he says to all the people that are listening when he preaches his first sermon. This is his first sermon. Bad first sermon, just so we know. Like, in, in earthly terms. He preaches his first sermon and people couldn't be more confused. Why? Because they were Hebrews. And Hebrews believed that they were going to get the promised land back where they would never be poor again. They were going to get the promised land back where they'd never have to mourn again. They were going to, get, they were, they were going to win with force. The Messiah was going to come back and kill everybody so they could reign. That they would never be hungry or thirsty again. And when Jesus gives them this parable, or this, this teaching, he's going, wait, what? I thought you were the Messiah. Like, this isn't the Messiah we expected. You see, when you draw near to God, you start to understand what is truly superior. Look why he goes on. He says, the merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad. Rejoice. No. <laughs> if you're in the audience and you're a Hebrew, like, like this author is writing to the Hebrews, you'd be hearing this going, no, no. Is he the Messiah? What is he talking about? No. Because your reward is great in heaven. You see, there's a superior land to this one. And until this land and this body is gone, I'm never going to have the superior. It's always going to be inferior. No matter how much peace we have, no matter how many pandemics we end, no matter how much wealth I have, it's always not going to be enough. It's always going to be this pressure of not enough. And the reason Jesus came was to draw near to us to say, you are exactly right. You will never be enough. But I am enough. I am the priest, I am the king, I am the Melchizedek, and I will be enough, and I will give you my blessing. And when I give you my blessing, you're then going to go out to the world and give them these superior blessings. Do I really believe these are superior blessings? Do I really believe that this is a superior way to live? 
I wrestle with that. I wrestle with how to be a peacemaker, when to fight, when not to fight, because God does call us to sometimes fight. I wrestle with those things. But we sh- that's what he's trying to tell them. Wrestle with this. Oh, and by the way, you're going to be persecuted for it. Just like the Hebrews were being persecuted. He's trying to convince them, you're being persecuted because you're actually, I want you to believe in Jesus. And if you do that, if you consider him, they don't want to consider any of these blessings. These aren't the blessings that the fat Sadducees and Pharisees and the religious leaders of the Hebrews' day or Jesus' day were looking for. They didn't want to be this way. They didn't want to give up all like Abraham did to go out into the world to make the message known. They were trying to keep what they had and get back what they thought they had that God said he would never give them back until he comes again. See, that's what it means that God is drawing near and people who want God near will know these blessings. They'll live out these blessings. They'll believe by faith that these are blessings and that these are the ways to draw near to God. Will we wrestle with it? Like Kiana talked about in her testimony, that we wrestle with doing what God wants and love it. Yes, every relationship. You have, do any of you have siblings? Have you ever wrestled with your siblings? Fought with your siblings? Like to the bloody end? Wrestled and fought? Like, like I had neighbor boys and one of them stuck a pitchfork in the other one's eye and missed it and hit the bone. I had to bring a, like a baseball bat to break it up. I'm like, I've seen... People who love each other, just, it, it's hard. God says, just know that you can rejoice because they treated Abraham this way. They treated Moses. They, if you're being treated that way, it means they see you like Abraham. It means they see you like Moses. And the reason they saw Abraham and Moses that way and the prophets that way is because they had God inside of them. So if people see you, that, that's what he's trying to encourage the Hebrews with. Hebrews 7, 8 goes on. It says, in the one case, men who will die receive tenths. That's the tithe. But in another case, Scripture testifies that he, Jesus, lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives tenths, has paid tenths through Abraham. For he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. In other words, Levi wasn't born yet. He was still in the lineage, and so yet he's receiving. He said, but there's a better way, a better priest. If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear? Said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron, who was the Levitical priest of the Old Testament. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of the law as well. You see, Jesus' death brought the righteousness and the peace of Melchizedek once and for all forever into the life of someone who believes in him. Over and done. No more going back and having to earn. No more going to the temple. Jesus' body was the temple. And now his church is the new temple. The reason we bring tithes to the body, the reason we give to one another, is because we believe this is his body. And we're a part of it. And so we give to it. Because we want to draw near to him and we realize that if I really want to draw near to him, it's not about some religious priesthood or some lineage of people that that I was born from. I've been born again. There is a new law of spiritual birth that trumps the physical birth of Abraham. 
And now I'm adopted, just like Abraham was adopted by God. I am adopted back into him that God says, I want to adopt you. I want to take you as an orphan, as an abandoned person, and bring you in. And then he says, I want you to go out, and I want you to tell people that they can be near me like that because of what Jesus has done. Because remember, in the Levitical priesthood, they could only go into the Holy of Holies. They could only be near God one time a year to confess the sins, the righteousness of a people, and ask for God's peace on the people because they were so sinful. It was, it was scary to draw near. But that wasn't God's fault. If you remember at Mount Sinai, God said, I want to speak with all of you. And they said, no way, no thank you. Just give us a spokesperson. We'll keep our distance. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing with Jesus. We'll just say, well, Jesus is my Moses. He's my spokesperson. And I'll just do what he tells me to do. And and we'll just do the law. And we'll do all this stuff. And all the while, God is saying, no, I want to draw near to you. Why do you keep pushing me away? The reason we push him away is the same reason they did. They're scared. I know you're holy. I know you're righteous. And Will you actually fulfill your promises? Will you love me when you, when you see the mess that I am and the disaster that I am? Will you still love me? Yeah, I'll forgive you. I'll be near you. And Jesus, when he died, the curtain tore in two and Jesus said I'm going to be near my people what does it mean when there's a change of priesthood there must be a change of the law look at what Jesus said in John 13 he said children I am with you a little while longer Jesus is saying I've drawn near but I'm getting ready to die and I'm going to heaven you will look for me just as I told the Jews what I've been telling the Jews of the Old Testament to look for me (laughs) and they've missed me Some of you have gotten it, but most of them are missing me, right? He said, and so I'm going to go away again, and all the Jews and all the Gentiles are going to have to keep looking for me together because of what I've done. And then he says, look, where I'm going, you cannot come. Not yet anyway. So now I tell you, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's God's definition of love, not ours. God's definition of love doesn't say, I just want my kids to play in the street and if they get run over, that's fine, like Kiana talked about. God's definition of love is you grab your kid and you say you're not playing in the street. Number one, because I don't want you dead, and I don't want grandma feeling bad the rest of her life because she killed a kid because you were playing in the street. That's not loving to grandma. That's not loving to you. You're not playing in the street because I love you. So you can either be motivated by not dying yourself or I'm going to help motivate you by not killing the hearts and minds and lives of other people. But I have to love you enough to tell you that's not okay. You see, that's the love God says he draws near. That Jesus said, I came, I drew near, and I'm going to come again. And then he looks at them and he says, the world will believe whether or not I am who I say I am. You ready for this? Based on how all of you are willing to draw near to one another. If you're not willing to draw near to one another, then it's just another selfish works-based, you-focused, me-focused religion like all the rest of them. 
And Abraham was not me-focused. Abraham was future-focused on a generation that would come that he would never see. And millions upon millions, if not billions of people that would come through his line. See, that's the beauty of this message. Luke 9 goes on to say this. Then he said to them, if anyone wants to come with me, you want to draw near to God? Do you want to go with God? Do you want to draw near to him? He says, he must deny himself. That's what Abraham did. He denied his right to all of his property. And he said, it's yours. Here's a, here's a piece back. Do you want more? And if the priest would have said, yeah, I want more, he would have been like, sure, it's yours anyway. Take up his cross daily and follow me. I don't know about you. I've been having health issues over the last six months. I don't like taking up my cross daily. I took up my cross during COVID. Thank you very much. I'm done. Got past the cross. Right? Oh, here's another ailment. You put a nail through your foot. Here's another cross for you to bear. No, 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 no. Now, now there's all these weird symptoms you're having that the doctor can't figure out. And here's another one. What are you going to do today, Matt? You're going to pick up your cross. You're going to follow. You're going to believe that I will draw near to you on your way to death because you're on your way to death anyway. Every day we're on our way to death. I'm not scared of it. I try not to be. But some days I read this and I'm like, I don't want to deny myself. I want my blessing. And God's like, you have my blessing. You have the blessing of heaven. You have a blessing that no one else could obtain. And he goes on and he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world? It forfeits his own identity. Did you not hear that in Kiana's testimony? Where she said, I was chasing everything and anything in the world and I didn't know who I was anymore. Who, who am I? When God met people and drew near to them in the Old Testament, he always renamed them. Do you realize that? He would give them these names or he'd give these places these names for them to remember him by. He does the same for us. He's given us a name that's above all other names. He's given us the name that we're to go tell people that there is a God, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, who wants to meet with them, to come near with them. It's a personal relationship. It's a God that has to distance himself from sin, but then he finds a way to make a sacrifice so that he can enter back in with sinners to draw them near to himself. There is no other God in the face of the planet that's like that. That's amazing. There's no other relationship that, that does that. He goes on and he says this in Galatians. When Paul's writing to the Galatians, because like the Hebrews, the Galatians stopped drawing near to Jesus. They stopped considering Jesus. Here's what he writes to the Galatians. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has hypnotized you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? In other words, did you receive the blessing? The Spirit's blessing? Did you receive the blessing because you were a good guy? Because, because you did all the right things? No, you did not. He goes on to say, or by hearing with faith. It was by hearing and going, okay, I believe. Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit that you're now going to be made complete by the flesh? You can't go back and try to like, you lean into God. And then he says, Do you, did you suffer so much for nothing? In other words, you suffered because you wouldn't go back to the fleshly things, because you wouldn't go back to the past, and now you're just going to give up? Don't do that. Keep fighting. 
So then, look at this. Does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Every time someone shares their testimony, I'm always awestruck by the miracle of God. That a human being who who has every right and thought to want to be the center of their own universe says no to themselves and says, I want Jesus. I want to draw near to him. Folks, there is no greater miracle than that. None. The breaking of the human will. The human will has caused every atrocity on the planet. The human will has caused every dynasty and every kingdom to raise up to kill and fight and destroy another kingdom. The human will is ripping us apart as a country right now. The greatest miracle is in Abraham. That's why he says, just as Abraham. And he goes on and he says, just as Abraham believed God, And it was credited to him for righteousness. Then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. We've been adopted. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham saying, all nations will be, there's that word again, blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. God says, since the foundation of what I've been trying to do, I created a world, I put it in space, I I created an earth, I gave you all the things you need, and I put two people on it and said, it's all yours. How much more blessing can you get? And we looked at God and said, we want everything without you. We want to be our own gods. We want to be in charge. We want all the world you've provided without the relationship, without having to draw near to you. It's why when Satan tempted them, they didn't go look for God. They listened to Satan's lies and they said, that sounds pretty good. We'll do it. All they had to do was cry out. All they had to do was say, you're, oh, I don't think we, we're not, let's go find, let's go find Jesus. He's wandering around the garden somewhere. We're going to go find him and ask him before we make this decision. That's all they had to do. And we're the same way. And God has every right after doing that to destroy us all. And what's amazing is he keeps giving us chance after chance. He keeps drawing near to us. He's given us this incredible Bible to show us how near he wants to be to his people. It's amazing. Just like Abraham. In that passage we read, it talked about giving and receiving tents. It's a controversial issue sometimes in the church. Just so you are aware, and those of you online, our church gives a tenth and an offering. We give 10% and 5% of every dollar that comes into our church and have every year since our existence outside of ourselves because we see in the Bible that we, God deserves way more than that, but that's just a minimum standard. And it, is, it has been difficult to do that as a church. But I don't do it because I'm trying to fulfill some Levitical law or prove something to God or say we're better than some other church. I do it because Abraham did it. Because God is worthy of it. And if it costs me my life and some of my salary, so be it. 
See, that's what it looks like. And so when Jesus is sitting in, again, they're in the temple. This is before he dies. They're sitting across from the box. Like we have a box back there, the temple treasury. He watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. He's watching their behavior. He's watching how they do this. How do you give what is already God's? Look at this. Many rich people were putting in large sums of money. They didn't have paper money back then. They had coins. If you're dumping a big, huge thing of coins into the money collection, and you got a big open cathedral room with stone walls, what noise is that making? They're smiling. Oh, listen to that go. Oh, listen to how faithful I've been. Oh, look at what I've done. Oh, oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to go sit down and enjoy the worship service now. Jesus was watching this go on, and look at what happens. And a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. They would have been very light, weighed nothing. You wouldn't have heard them. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put even more than all those giving to the temple treasury. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty has put in everything she possessed and all she had to live on. Are you willing to put in all for God? That doesn't mean he's asking you to go sell everything, okay? Don't don't do that. This widow, obviously, was a widow. She was to be taken care of by the temple. Any money that she got, she knew she was already taken care of because the law required her to be taken care of as a widow. So this money that was extra that she received, these these two pennies, wherever she received it from, she's like, I don't need these. I already have food from the body. God is already providing for me as a widow. He's already taking care of me when I have no family to take care of me. Because in Jewish culture, if she was a widow coming to the temple and Jesus calls her a widow, it means she was officially on the widow's list, which means there was no family to care for her. The New Testament also repeats that, by the way. She was giving everything because she believed that that was her act to draw near to her God. She wasn't giving it to the corrupt temple or the corrupt priest. She didn't care about them. She's like, this is how God's asked me to give. This is how I will give. Jesus goes on. He says, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where do your time, talent, treasures, and the stories you tell and post on social media Where do they say that your treasure lies? Where do they say your treasure? If people said, this is what it seems like Matt keeps drawing near to, what would would they say? What do I keep drawing near to? Is it God? Is it his people? Is that what I'm drawing near to? Do I see the treasure of his church, his body, his bride? Do I see the treasure of the family of God? Do I see that as a treasure? Or do I just see it as something that I have to do so that God will keep his distance from me, but he won't smite me? He goes on and he says this. Acts 2, the early church, says, and they, were devote, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. The reason we're doing these testimonies is because I want you to hear about the wonders and signs that God has done. 
Yesterday, I had the opportunity yesterday morning to go up to the crew fall retreat. One of my best friends from college was speaking at the retreat. He's on staff with crew ministry. And so I got to go up and just see him and spend the morning with him. And we were sitting, it was kind of funny because we were both sitting in the rocking chairs at Highland Lakes, our camp that we support. We're both sitting in the rocking chairs out in front of the dining hall of Highland Lakes and a college student walks by and they're like, you look like a couple of old guys getting ready to tell kids to get off your lawn. <laughs> and we're like, thanks a lot, appreciate that. And then we looked at each other, we're like, we've just been talking about colonoscopies and CT scans and like, yeah, I think they're right. Like, we're there, like, you know. And as we're sitting there rocking together, we begin sharing stories. We just start laughing and weeping and like, man, God, thank you that you've used us. Thank you that there have been men, women that have listened to your teaching through us. That Thanks for the signs and wonders that you've done in our life that we ignore because we don't have the life we want right now. Our health isn't what we want right now. And to just sit and talk with him, I was so encouraged. Just, yeah, this is life. Like we fight, we struggle, we... It says, look at this. He goes, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Not a want, a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. Notice this is not happening out in the world. This is happening in the church. Let me repeat that. This isn't they're going out and providing support for the world. They're supporting their family the body of Christ. They're trying to sure up one another and help one another have and meet needs and confront one another on their sin. It said they ate their food with, joy, with a joyful and humble attitude. I try to do that, but some foods really, I don't like. Right? That's hard. I watched sometimes growing up with my kids, you watch them struggle. And I just want to smack them over the head with this verse, but you know why I've never done it? because I do the same thing. I've never pulled out this verse and been like, you need to eat with a joyful heart because I know what's coming back around to me the next time we eat. But it's the heart we're supposed to have. And he says, praising God and having favor with the people and every day the Lord added to them those who are being saved. He's not just saying being saved one time. He's saying constantly, continually being saved from themselves. Matthew 23, Jesus talks to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Then he says, These things should have been done without neglecting the others. He doesn't say don't give. He doesn't say don't be generous. He says you should do all that, but with a heart of justice and mercy and faith. These things should have been done. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, yet you swallow or gulp down a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they were full of greed and indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup, so the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but are instead, or, but inside are full of dead man's bones and every impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you you seem righteous to people, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, these Hebrews that we're reading about, we're going back to these guys to find the answers. To give their tithes. To ask them what they should do. And Jesus has already told them, they are blind. Don't go back to them. 
That's why the writer of Hebrews is so concerned that they're turning back. And he's like, don't draw near to them. Draw near to Christ and draw near to the church he's building. Is the church perfect? Nope, we're full of hypocrites. We're messy too. The difference is we're not blinded because we have Jesus. And Jesus helps us see and heal our blindness. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. Remember this, the person who sows sparingly, we also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Let me pause real quick. That is one of the most misinterpreted, misused verses in all the Bible. Because whenever we read that, we automatically start thinking what? Earthly things, right? So if I give money, if I, if I sow a tenth, then God's going to give me back a hundred. He might. He might just give you a hundred poor in spirit blessings. He might give you a hundred persecuted blessings. He might give you a, a hundred for your tenth you gave, hungry and thirsty blessings. Yes! See, we sow Christ. It doesn't mean he doesn't bless us with hundredfold sometimes. He does, because he's just so generous. But it says, each person should do as he decides in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. He is not saying don't give unless you're cheerful. Most of you would never give. I would never give. Most of the time, I become cheerful as I'm giving. That's called faith. By faith you give, saying, I'm going to believe God, I'm going to believe his word, I'm going to draw near to God, I'm going to draw near to people, and I'm just going to trust him that by doing this, God will be near and with me. And I believe, even if I'm not cheery yet, that God can cheer up these dead bones in this soul. See, that's what the writer's talking about. That's what Paul's talking about. And he says, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. In other words, the point of you being provided for is not so you can say, look at me. The point of you being provided for is so that you can point to God's goodness and his works. As it is written, he scattered, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. They will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with the others through the proof provided by the service. And they will have a deep affection for you in their prayers and on your behalf because of the surpassing great grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul's talking about money here. He's talking about he's taking an offering from the Corinthian church and he's taking it to the rest of the church. And he's saying, do you understand that this little bit you're doing makes a huge impact for the advancement of the gospel? Yesterday, I'm standing in the dining hall at the retreat. I'm standing there and a young woman walks up who has been a part of our youth group. She came up and gave me a hug and she said, you know, it is just so neat to be back here again because she went to camp with us, Fusion Camp, a number of years. She said, it's so neat to be back here again. She was actually a part of another church and I went and talked to her pastor and said, hey, I know you guys don't have a youth program right now. Is it okay if she comes to ours? But I'm not gonna ask her to come on Sunday morning. I want her to be with her parents. I want her to be in your church. But, but is it okay if she comes to our youth program? Like we can help disciple her. That's weird, by the way. Most pastors don't do that. Most churches don't do that because I believe in the body of Christ, not we're the body of Christ. And so she began coming and being a part of our youth group. She went to camp with us. She came up to me. She goes, Matt, it's just so cool to be here because I remember when I committed my life and surrendered my life to Jesus at this camp. And it's just so cool to be back here again and be reminded of what Jesus did in my life. The generous gift, the indescribable gift. How do you, 
That camp's been built over 60 years of people pouring money into it. Gifts that you don't even know of from churches and people we don't even know of. And people's lives are being changed. It's indescribable. You can't like put it on, like you can't make sense of it. Just that's what God does. And that's why he asks us to draw near to him with our whole lives, our time, our talent, our treasures, and our testimony. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works. There it is again, good works. To be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve, not today, but for the age to come so that they may take hold of that hope we talked about, seizing hope, of life that is real. Paul says there is a fake life that everybody's chasing. Don't chase it. Don't chase that. Chase what's real, and what's real is God and people. Love God, love people. Can he use buildings and stuff to do that? Sure. But he says, chase what's real. Hebrews goes on and says, for the one, these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. That's the Melchizedek. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah, And Moses said nothing about the tribe of Judah concerning priests. In other words, can Judah be a priest? I thought he was going to be the king, like the king of Judah. And this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal command concerning physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. Jesus died, he came back to life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the previous command... The previous priesthood, the previous temple, the previous laws have been annulled. They've been completed because it was weak and unprofitable. For the law perfected nothing. Then he goes on and he says, But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Do you want the old hope or do you want a better hope? You're going to sit in the rockers and talk about the good old days? Or are you going to sit in the rockers and talk about what God's doing right now in changing people's lives and what he's done? And when we're discouraged, you look at the other person and say, Matt, you keep fighting. Matt looked at me. He goes, Matt, my grandfather passed away when I was young. He goes, I wish he was a faithful man. I wish I could sit down with my grandpa today and just have a conversation with him about his faith. Fight. Fight for your health. Fight, fight to stay alive, not because you want life, because you want something, but because you want to make Jesus known to people. So beautiful. Zephaniah 3, just like the woe to the Pharisees, Zephaniah the prophet says, Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, that oppressive city. She has not obeyed. She's not accepted discipline. She's not trusted in Yahweh. She has not drawn near to God. I pray that's not you. The princes with her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary, and they do violence to instruction. I pray that wouldn't be us. I pray that we would be people that draw near to God, and because of that, we're not oppressive. We're blessing. We offer people the blessings of God. Like Melchizedek drew near to Abraham and offered him the blessings of God. James says, 
But God gives greater grace, greater than you can imagine. You think you're beyond God. You think he doesn't want to draw near to you. You think he doesn't want you. Baloney. God says he wants to give the blessing of grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, the poor in spirit. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's a promise. Declare it, cling to it, believe it. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, because COVID's out there. No, because we're sinful. And purify your hearts. Use some hand sanitizer. You double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Look at this. And he'll exalt you. You can trust him. He'll exalt you. We're going to end with a story. Not a story I'm going to tell. It's a story that's true, that happened. It's a story from the Bible, from Luke chapter 24. And as we read this story, I want you to put yourself in the position of the ones that are hearing this story. Jesus has been crucified. He has come back to life. He has walked around a couple of times and he has gone to meet people and interacted with people. People are very confused because a dead man's come back to life. They're freaking out. The Romans are freaking out. The Jewish leaders are freaking out. Everybody's like, what just happened? Luke 24. Now that same day, that same day means the day Jesus was resurrected, that he appeared to the women at the tomb. That same day, two of them, the disciples, were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. They were giving testimony. They were talking about their testimony. Like, did you see this? What about this? They're discussing the things of God. Look, and while they were discussing and arguing, <laughs> isn't it so easy for discussing to turn into argument? Okay. Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. Jesus comes back to life and he doesn't go to the temple and appear before the rulers and authorities. He doesn't go before Pilate. He doesn't go before Caesar. Jesus' first acts were to go to the men and women he loved and to appear to them so that they could know that he wasn't out of their life and that the Holy Spirit was coming and they could draw near to him forever. He came near, but they were prevented from recognizing him. I have no idea how that works, but that's pretty cool. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? I love how Jesus just steps into the middle of stuff, right? Like he just, he just, he's picking a fight. It's great. And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. Like they're walking along. This guy comes up and he's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, oh God, we don't even want to tell this guy we're his followers and our rabbi died and we think he came back to life. How do you even explain this? Like they're just so discouraged. That may be you right now. You may, the miracle could have just happened and you're still discouraged. But Jesus draws near. Then the one named Cleopas answered him. Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these three days? Do you have, do you have no idea what happened? What things, he asked them. He doesn't say, no, I don't know. I love that. That would have been a lie. Jesus doesn't lie. He's like, well, tell me what things. Goes on and it says, 
So they asked, they said to him, the things concerning Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. I was hoping if I trusted Jesus, he would, he would fix this part of my life, that he'd fix that thing. He'd, he'd do this, he'd do that, he'd do that for me. No, no, no. He brings something better than all the things we want. He brings himself. Besides this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. They're like, this is crazy stuff. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And he said to them, how unwise and slow are you to believe in your hearts all the prophets have spoken? <laughs> Didn't Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Do you, do you not understand that this is the purpose? This is the point? It was all about God drawing near. It's not about you getting the promised land now, getting all the promises, getting all the earthly stuff. There's something deeper and bigger going on here. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpret, interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. How long did that take? You think my sermons are long. That's, that took a while, right? They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further. I love that. He starts to test them. He starts to walk away and see what their response is and look at their response. But they urged him, stay with us. Don't draw away. We want you to be near us. So we went to stay with them. And it was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, he blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them. That was communion. That's what Melchizedek did with Abraham. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. <laughs> so they said to each other, Weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Does your heart get ablaze when you read the Bible? I know it can be hard to understand, but the Bible is God's message of him drawing near to person after person after person who doesn't deserve it. They actually deserve the opposite. And him constantly drawing near. It is the stories that give us confidence that there is a God who in his resurrection doesn't come back like a fiery being with a sword. He comes back and walks along the road with them. He breaks bread with them. He, he explains things to them. He loves them. He spends time with them. That's our God. There's no other God like that. And it says, he explained the scriptures. Man, the scriptures are beautiful. It's why we cover them. So how can you draw near to God? Let me just give you three simple things. Number one, if you haven't done your will, haven't done his will, by having not done his will, just confess by faith that you haven't done his will. Confess. Say, God, I, I'm not seeking you. Just confess. God says, great. I'll draw near to you. You draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. Over and over again. It's how it works, because it's not about you, it's about me. Maybe you've done God's will. Well, have you done God's will and confessed how great he is? 
Have you done God's will and been like, man, thank you, God, that you allow me to do your will. Thank you that I did the right thing. Thank you. I just give you praise. It was you in me that did that. Like, is that your heart before God that you recognize he did it in you because he drew near to you to allow you to do it? Thirdly, how can you draw near to God? Not knowing his will, confessing by faith that you don't know his will. God, I don't know what to do. I just confess to you. And in all of these things, are you ready for this? The Bible says also confess to one another. Confess when you don't know what you're doing. Confess your sins. Confess the greatness of God and what he's done in your life and the miracles you've seen him do. Like be a confessional people, both confessing who you aren't and confessing who God is. Confessing who you are and confessing who God isn't. That, that's the beauty of us drawing near to God. So as we wrap up, I'll ask you this question. Do you want a better hope? If you want a better hope, draw near. Draw near. Draw near to his body. I know you want to be distant. If you're in the midst of sin, it's terrible to draw near the body. You just feel so convicted. God says, that's why I've provided a sacrifice. If you've done great things, sometimes it can be hard for you to come tell people the miracles you're seeing happen because the other person is struggling. And you don't want to brag. You don't want, like, you want to be careful. with. Talk about what God has done. If you don't know his will, come to the body. Let's pray together. Let's seek it. We probably don't know either, but we'll pray for you. See, that's what it looks like to draw near to God and to draw near to his people. And then give. Give your time, your talent, your treasures. Give your testimonies to God. And when you do, I promise you, I promise you, because God promised it, he will draw near to you. He will. 